Breaking down barriers part two while you're in it. <sighs> so here's three phrases that I'm going to give you, and I bet they're not your favorites, okay? There's nothing wrong with them. The only issue is the way that I and maybe you also might respond to them. These three phrases fuel my selfishness. They feel like an interruption. They ask me to detour. They impede my progress. I'm owning that in advance, okay? And I'm letting you know that you might have to do something similar for yourself. Maybe you can relate to some degree. Here they are. While you're there, would you mind picking up? While you're out, would you mind stopping at? While you're at it, would you just go ahead and do you know these statements? Now, over the years, I've tried to teach myself to respond better to these questions. And so I'm going to say responding better, not that I'm responding perfectly, because they're no big deal, right? But sometimes they feel like a super big deal, especially depending on the mood that you are in. So a pro tip for you would be to practice a simple phrase, set it up as your default response, it will make the requester, requestor happy, and it might also even aid you in feeling happier in that moment. And the magic phrase is, happy to. And the truth is that I am generally happy to, once I get over the fact that there's no real reason to not be happy to. I just wasn't, it just wasn't what I had planned to do. The truth is, and you know this too, when it comes to any of those kind of regular, necessary tasks, it's always a lot easier when it's my idea to begin with. Anyway, we, we've been navigating the drama and the trauma facing first century Christians as described by Luke in the book of Acts. We've discovered two really interesting and I think instructive characteristics of the early church, two things that we should take to heart. First of all, when disaster struck and, and the world changed in that kind of moment, the first instinct was to not try to figure out what God was up to in this moment. Instead, these folks focused on what they should be up to. And in light of and in response to what was going on, we're going to talk more about that next episode, okay? But specifically, they asked what they should do to help the people most impacted by the disaster. So when Jesus' followers in Antioch heard that a famine would sweep through the entire Roman Empire, they immediately started collecting money for the people far away in Judea, a group that would have a really difficult time surviving a famine of that scale. And in an unprecedented move, they began collecting funds for people they had never met in a part of the world that most of them would never visit um, to a culture that was nothing like theirs. And, and never before, and this is historically accurate, never before in recorded history had a multicultural group felt responsibility for a group of people with whom they had virtually nothing in common. And that's a model that we continue to follow all the way up here in 2021. We continue to give and to collect for the worldwide strategy of making Jesus famous that the world may know, right? That the world may know that God loves them and that Jesus died for them. And this unique approach to generosity is fueled by the message of Jesus. God loved, so he gave. And Jesus instructed his followers to follow 
suit, to give, not just to people who could return the favor or to people who would look like or act like people around them. He said, we're to give to strangers, to Gentiles, to Samaritans, and to Romans, even to our enemies. As that brand of Christianity marked the early church, it should mark us as well, corporately and individually. And then our last time together, we, we, we talked about it, it was amazing, uh, even it was shocking. We were confronted with their seemingly irrational faith in the face of random acts of violence, of tragedy, and of persecution. And I say irrational because when bad things happen, they turn to God for comfort even though they were confident that God could have kept those bad things from happening in the first place. Like us. Like us, they wondered why. But they kept believing. And they kept praying. Things didn't always add up, right? Things didn't always seem to make sense. But they maintained hope even when they didn't have a complete explanation. Not because they were crazy and not because they were desperate, not because they were superstitious, but because their leader, Peter, to whom many, many bad things had happened, Peter assured them that their hope was not in vain because their hope was anchored to an event, the resurrection of Jesus. As an eyewitness of both Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, Peter's words carried weight. They carried weight back then and they carry weight today too. So, natural disaster, political upheaval, religious persecution, economic volatility, it was all just another day in not paradise. And their death-defying confidence in God, fueled by the teachings of Peter, is why there is no more a Roman Empire, but there are churches in almost every major and minor city, town, and village in the world today. And to the degree that our faith is anchored to what their faith was anchored to, we too can live with hope. That even though we don't always have full explanations, there is a reason to believe. Previously on Breaking Down Barriers, we saw that James, the brother of John, was executed by Herod Agrippa. And the crowd went wild. Right? They wanted more Christian blood. So Herod had Peter arrested. Round two. And but before they could go to trial... He was miraculously delivered from jail. Herod was embarrassed. He went to the beach. He was eaten by worms. You should really read your Bible. It is very exciting. After Peter's miraculous escape from jail, he immediately went to the home of a woman named, can you guess? Come on. That's right, it's Mary. You might want to jot this down, okay? When you read the New Testament, it appears that almost every single woman in the New Testament is named Mary. Have you noticed that? What's up with that? If you were going to make this stuff up, you wouldn't go and confuse your audience by naming all the women Mary and all the men, either John or James or something that starts with a J, right? But, but this is actually one of the reasons that we believe that the New Testament documents are reliable accounts of actual events. You know what? Because as it turns out, Mary was, in reality, the most popular female name in Palestine in the first century. And if you're making this stuff up, 
many years after the events from another part of the world, you wouldn't know that. For more information on this, because this stuff is so fascinating to me, and I just know that if it's fascinating to me, you must love it also, I want to recommend to you another book or two. So the first is entitled, The Untold Story of the New Testament Church by Frank Viola. This book is a chronological story timeline of the New Testament. It links the events and the people and the writings and and puts them into a straight linear timeline. And then I only have a copy of uh, that on ebook, so I can't show that one to you. But uh, another one called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. This book, this book is, is fascinating. Uh, look, look at, it looks at the evidence for why we can trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the stories of Jesus. And if you like to nerd out, go ahead, check these resources out. They will not disappoint you. Meanwhile, back at the story. Peter hightails it to Mary's house, okay? He tells everybody there what had happened to him in prison. But in order to not endanger Mary and her guests, he slips out while it's still dark. And here's his final statement, sort of as he goes through the door, as he disappears into the streets. Acts 12, verse 17. Tell James, and this James is the brother of Jesus, um, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Interesting little tidbit here. This is what I referenced a little bit last episode. Luke doesn't say where Peter went. All right, Nobody knows where Peter went for sure. He lived his life on the run for the next, you know, just about 10 years. 10 years on the run. He eventually makes his way to Rome, where he taught Christians living in the shadow of the empire that was persecuting them. And he was eventually arrested again. And while he awaited his trial in Rome, he dictated his memories of his life, the teachings of Jesus to his traveling companion, John Mark. Now, did a little bell just go off inside your head? This is the same Mark whose mother, Mary, was hosting the prayer meeting that Peter interrupted after being sprung from jail. Apparently, here's what happened. So imagine this, moms. Apparently, when Peter slipped out that night, Mark went to his mother, and mom, again, just imagine this kind of a conversation. Mark said to his mom, hey, mom, is it okay if I go with Peter? Right? I I know he just got broken out of jail. Uh, I I know he had been put there and arrested by our king. He's definitely got a price on his head, and you'll probably never see me again, but please, can I go? Can I go? Can I go? Please? As we've discussed before, Mark's account of Peter's exploits as dictated in Rome would eventually circulate around the empire known as the Gospel of Mark. But it was the story of Jesus. And I think Mark's mother was probably pretty proud of him. Anyway, Peter is eventually executed during the reign of Nero while in Rome. And the author of a late 2nd century work claims that Peter, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you've just heard this anecdotally, You've heard this before, that, that Peter actually requested to be crucified upside down, right? Because he said he was not worthy to be executed in the same manner as his Savior. But seeing as Roman soldiers didn't generally take requests from condemned criminals, Peter might very well have asked that. But it's, you know, kind of highly unlikely that they gave in and gave him what he requested. But you know what? Who knows? Maybe they did. Maybe it happened. But here's what we do know. While he was on the run, Peter dictated at least two different letters to Christians. And they come to us as 
first and second Peter. Again, not very creative. But they, they were written to Christians who had been scattered throughout the empire because of the persecution that had begun in Jerusalem. So, all over the empire, imagine this. There's little, little house churches that are just led by Christians, just kind of popping, popping up, popping up, popping up all over the place. And no one knows exactly what to make of these things, right? I mean, these, these people, these Jesus followers, they're, they weren't Jewish, but they weren't pagan. They, they worshiped the Jewish God, but the, they worshiped him on the wrong day of the week. They were good people. They're good citizens, but, but they weren't kosher. They formed their own little communities, but they weren't exclusive. They weren't elitist. They, they actually invited other people in. Most amazingly of all, they went out of their way to take care of people who nobody else was willing to take care of. But, but there was a problem, and, and this is the sticking point. This was the barrier that stood in the way. One thing that these Jesus followers, these followers of the dead Galilean, would not do, they would not sacrifice to or acknowledge local deities, the local gods. And that right there is a problem, right? That right there is a barrier between Christians and their neighbors. Because in ancient times, adding a god, not a problem, right? People did that all the time. But ignoring the existing gods? Big problem. The last thing that ancient people who are living on the edge as it already was economically, living on the edge nutritionally, the last thing that they wanted to do is to upset the gods because fundamental to Roman religion and fundamental to Roman culture was the assumption that the empire of Rome was eternal. But it was only eternal as long as, the Roman, as, long as Rome enjoyed the favor of the gods. And the gods were infamously fickle and so easily offended. So maintaining their favor of those gods was really seen as a national security issue for Rome. If too many Roman citizens neglected the old gods and, uh, and the old ways to chase after some new god on the block, it would only be a matter of time before the old gods got angry and withdrew their favor. This was so embedded into the Roman conscience, the, the, the whole Roman Empire, that as Christianity began to spread, loads of people began blaming Christians for anything, for anything that negative that happened in their neighborhood or in their empire. So whether it was earthquakes or floods or military defeats or famine, plague, it's human nature, right? It's human nature to look for someone or some things to blame when things go bad. We still do it very much today. And the last place that we look is in the mirror. And ancient people were no different. Scapegoating Christians was so common that Tertullian, remember him? We, we just looked at him briefly a couple of episodes ago. Tertullian was an adult convert to Christianity. He's the son of a Roman centurion. And he made this observation. If the Tiber rises too high, if the Tiber River, which was the river that ran through the city of Rome, it was a source of fresh water, it was a source of trade, but it was also part of their sewage system. And when it flooded, which it did quite frequently, it created problems on multiple levels. If the Tiber rises too high or the Nile is too low, now the, the Nile Basin is in Egypt, and that's where Rome purchased the majority of its grain. Now, the Nile River and the Nile River Basin is a marvelous, amazing system of irrigation in that region of the world. So when the Nile River ran too low, 
it resulted in a bad harvest, which would drive up grain prices and oftentimes trigger civil unrest, possibly even famine. Tertullian keeps going. So if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. When anything, when anything went wrong in the empire, clearly the gods were upset. And the best way to appease the gods was to rid the empire of those who did not recognize the gods. So, as you would imagine, this put Christians in a very precarious position wherever they lived throughout the empire. And Peter knew this. So he writes to Christians throughout the empire to comfort them, to encourage them, to to help them move forward. And we looked at a portion of his first letter last episode when he assured them that their suffering was not God's judgment on them. They they hadn't done anything wrong. On On the contrary, he said, your suffering and your response to suffering is a tool that God is going to use to draw attention to himself. Now, granted, speaking for me and I'm guessing speaking for you too, we would all rather that God provide us with a different tool, right? But think about it. You may, or maybe a friend of yours, or maybe a family member, but back to you. You may have actually been drawn to faith, or back to faith, after watching someone with faith navigate a difficult season, or navigate a tragedy. So Peter wasn't wrong. So he says to these first century Christians, this suffering that you're going through, this uncertainty that you're going through, these difficult times, it's a tool that God will use if you'll respond correctly. Here's how he wrote it. 1 Peter 1.7, these sufferings have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, like, as if you say, if you get this right, people will not have any margin to doubt the genuineness, the authenticity of your faith. These sufferings have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This was basically Peter's version of what Jesus had said. Let your light shine in such a way that people will see your good works and go eyes up, right? And discover and give glory to your Father in heaven. But, but, and here's where we are going today. Not only did Peter try to explain or to contextualize their suffering, then he gives these suffering saints something to do, something to do while they're navigating. That, that all came along with the stuff of just being a Jesus follower. These were his, hey, while you're there, hey, hey, while you're out, hey, while you're at it, instruction. While you're suffering, while you're being mistreated, while you're being misunderstood, there's something that you should do in the meantime. And there's something that you should not do in the meantime. While you're suffering, while you're being mistreated, don't circle the wagons, right? And don't just sit around praying that Jesus returns soon. Instead, and this, and this is what he asked them to do. And honestly, I think that this is what our Heavenly Father is asking all of us to do, especially right now. He said, while you're suffering, 1 Peter 4.1, Therefore, 
since Christ suffered in his body, and since you are following Christ, arm yourselves also with, and Peter is saying, okay, go out there and get suited up. Gear up, gear on. I want you to equip yourself. I want you to be ready. I want you to find this particular tool, this particular weapon, this particular item, and I want you to arm yourself with it. Choose this, because in the battle that you are about to fight, this will be your most effective tool. And you might not think that on your own. That's why I'm telling you. Okay, so arm yourselves with what? While you're suffering, I want you to arm yourself with the same attitude, same perspective, same way of thinking, same way of thinking that Jesus had. Consider Jesus' approach to suffering and ask how you can adopt that approach. But Peter doesn't leave it just up to their imagination or to our imagination as to what this looks like. He spells it out. So while you're suffering, while you're navigating the complexities of of being a Christian in a pagan world, where, where, where you're blamed for everything that goes wrong in the neighborhood and in the empire, while you're doing all of that, drop down to verse 8. Above all, this is priority number one. What comes next shouldn't surprise us, okay? Especially because it's coming from Peter. Because what, what, what he said is what he heard from the lips of Jesus. Peter was there. He was in the room that night when Jesus established this command that replaced all the other commands. He was there that night when Jesus gave his apostles their marching orders. When he gave us our marching orders. While you're suffering, figuring out what to do, how to go forward. Love each other deeply, unwaveringly, earnestly. Why, Peter? What does that have to do with suffering? What does that have to do with what we're going through right now? I'll tell you, Peter says. Because love, this unique kind of one another love, this deep love, covers over a multitude of sins. His point was this. Sin will divide you. Love will unite you. Sin and division is the spirit of Antichrist. Love and unity is the spirit of Christ. Our into oneness embodies the spirit of Christ. Sin will divide you. Love, the way that Jesus loves you, will unite you as a community of Christians. So how are you doing with that right now? You can't afford to be divided. He would say, people are watching and you need each other more than ever in this season of suffering. So while you're being mistreated, love each other deeply and don't let anything divide you. And, th and then he gets painfully specific. And while you're loving deeply, here's what it looks like. 1 Peter 4, 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. When you see a brother or sister in need, when you hear about a brother or sister in need, locally or internationally, whether it's food or whether it's a place to stay, provide them with what they need and take them in as Christ took you in. He then continues, while you're suffering, while you're trying to figure out what to do in the middle of all this uncertainty, I don't know where I am, I don't know what's happening, while you're being tempted to circle the wagons and protect yourself, focus only on yourselves to point the finger at someone else, each of you, Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received 
to serve others as faithful stewards. That is, you have gifts that are on loan from God as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Wait a second here, Peter. Just wait, just wait. Come on. Do you have any idea what we're going through right now? Do you know what it feels like to be here right now? Dude, that's a lot to ask, right? Peter, we don't even know where you are. I'm not sure that you realize what's going on right now, what we're in the middle of right now. So Peter says, yeah, that's true. I have asked a lot. I am asking a lot. But then again, the father asked a lot on the, sa- on, on the son on, on your behalf. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And here's some good news. You don't have to die for anyone. Just love them deeply. Serve them and offer hospitality. Love people in such a way that they look up. They go eyes up. And and, and here's what's amazing. We know that this, from history, that this is exactly what these Christians did. They did exactly what Peter instructed them to do based on what Jesus had instructed his followers to do. And without even raising an army, without even really raising their voice, they raised the dignity of the people around them. In the midst of the misery and the poverty and the illness that characterized most ancient villages and cities, Christians in the early centuries provided an oasis of mercy and compassion. Mercy and compassion, for now, they, they kind of seem self-evident to us, but it was so countercultural in that culture. But they embraced it anyway. Again, while they were yet sinners, while they were yet pagans, Christ, God had died for them. And it wasn't threats that led them to repentance. As Paul would write later, it was God's kindness that led them to repentance. Now, this change, this shift, was most evident when a series of epidemics laid waste to the empire. Entire cities, entire villages became graveyards. These regions were abandoned for a generation for fear that maybe the pestilence or the plague remained there. And during one of these epidemics in the late 2nd century, it's reported that there were over 5,000 deaths per day just in the city of Rome. When the pestilence broke out, the pagan priests, the civil leaders, the wealthy, they all fled to the countryside. But many Christians chose to stay. They had literally lost their fear of death. And when they stayed, they cared for one another. And as a result, Christian communities fared far better than their pagan neighbors. But these brave Christians took things an unprecedented step further. They took what Peter said about hospitality to a level that no one ever expected. They cared for their pagan neighbors whose families had abandoned them. Neighbors who, in many cases, just a couple of weeks ago, had previously refused to have anything to do with these Christians because the Christians refused to worship the gods. And they chose instead to worship a dead Galilean. And these astonished men and women were just stunned by the simple kindness of this strange but powerful faith, these strange but compassionate people. And at the height of the second great epidemic, which I'm sure in the ancient world felt like a pandemic, Bishop Dionysus of Alexandria wrote a lengthy tribute commending Christians who had remained behind to care for the sick and in many cases had given their lives to do so. Here's what he wrote. 
Most of our brothers showed unbounded love. And there it is again. Most of our brothers loved deeply, loyally, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life. Many of the Christians stayed behind and as a result, they lost their life. The best of our brothers lost their lives. In this manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that in death, in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. Now, here's why this is so powerful. These men and women, these brave Christians, they did not die for what they believed right? They died because they acted on what they believed. And it's a reminder, as Jesus taught so frequently, that application, application, application is what makes the difference. We're always applying all the time. Application is what gets noticed. How are you applying? That's why it's not enough for us to simply believe correctly. We must act on what we say we believe. We need the careful balance of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We must behave courageously, selflessly, lovingly. And our first century brothers and sisters took others first to a whole nother level. And in the same letter, Bishop Dionysius talks about the heathens, the pagans. So checks out what happens there. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they they pushed the sufferers away and they fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were even dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt. The selfless behavior of Christians became impossible to ignore. The pagan world took note. Christians showcased a category of compassion and generosity that got the attention of those in need and eventually grabbed the attention of those who had gotten tired of a culture characterized by greed. A culture that reflected the values of their gods. The pagan gods had no interest in what people did, or how they fared, couldn't care less. They were greedy for sacrifice. They threatened famine, plagues, war, pestilence, if they weren't satisfied. But the God of the Christians, the God of the Christians was different. The crucified God, the nailed God, as he was later referred to, had come to earth to die for his subjects. And his subjects, in turn, gave to and cared for those who could not care for themselves. So eventually, and you know this part as well, the conversion of Emperor Constantine happens. It's about 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus. The empire that crucified Jesus was now embracing him as a living God. And whether Constantine's conversion was sincere or political or maybe a combination of both, We'll never know, okay? But what we do know is that what began as a disenfranchised, persecuted minority influenced the majority by refusing to employ the tools of the kingdoms of this world. Stuff that just made sense to do, right? And instead, they employed the upside-down way of their king. They gave, they served, and they loved. And the world changed. After, about 20 years after Constantine's death, a relative of his, Julian, became emperor. At about age 20, Julian had abandoned Christianity. Just, I don't like it, it doesn't work. 
maybe just like some of you, maybe like someone you know. But Julian re-embraced the Roman gods, the gods of his ancestors, and he was convinced, like so many were, that the problems in the empire were the, were the result of the gods being ignored. So he defunded the churches, and he reinstituted the pagan priesthood, as well as pagan sacrifice. He went so far as to try and create new pagan charities. There had never been a pagan charity because the pagan gods weren't charitable. But none of this worked. They returned to paganism. That that return never got traction because the roots of Christian compassion were already too deep in the culture of the empire. Julian, a.k.a. Julian, also known as Julian the Apostate, was so frustrated by his failure. Nothing he instituted was catching on. So he writes a letter to the pagan high priest in Galatia. He's insisting that they distribute free grain and wine to the poor. And he said this, Noting, the impious Galileans, because that's how he referred to Christians, the impious Galileans, in addition to their own, so in, in addition to take care of their, taking care of their own people, they support ours as well. It is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. But there was no response. No response to Julian's proposals because there were no doctrines, there were no traditions, there were no habits for the pagan priests to build on. Others first, give to those who cannot or will not return the favor. Love your enemy. God is love. These were all distinctly Christian ideas, and they appealed to the soul. They rang true. They pointed to a better way, to a better world. But, and this is so important, When Peter originally, way back before all of this, when Peter originally instructed early Christians to practice hospitality and generosity and to love deeply, it wasn't a strategy for change. It wasn't a way to start a revolution. He wasn't there to stir things up. Peter did not. Peter, in fact, could not have ever envisioned Rome capitulating to Christian influence. It was just unimaginable, and it was not even the point. In Peter's time, Rome was winning, and as far as Peter knew, Rome was eternal, right? Rome must always win. He didn't see compassion and virtue as a strategy or a way to gain influence to topple the empire, because why bother? He lives in another kingdom. Compassion, kindness, hospitality, love. For Peter, these were the ways that you would live in Christ's kingdom, wherever you were. They were just the logical responses to the teachings of Jesus. They were the way to live in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom in which you can live regardless of where you are or what is happening around you at any given time. Jesus' followers, they, they weren't instructed to be generous and compassionate in order to gain something or to win something. Peter was clear they had already won. They had already gained something that you couldn't put a price on. Here's what he said. Remember this? He said this to the first century suffering Christians, and he says it to you, and he says it to me. 1 Peter 1, 3. In God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope that can never be taken away through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But wait, there's still more. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. But in the meantime, while you're there, while you're at it, 
while you're up. Live as if that's true. Live in response to God's gracious gift, eternal life. Our right standing with God, the freedom, the freedom to forgive because you have been forgiven, the freedom from bitterness, the freedom from rage, knowing there is a just God who will exact justice in his time and in his way. And in the meantime, while you're up, give, serve, love. Not to change the world, although the world might change. Into one. We give and we serve and we love because that's what our Heavenly Father did for us. That's what our Heavenly Father did for you. And that's all the reason that you need. These things, these things are things that you are called to give, serve, love. Now, at the end of Peter's letter, there's something so subtle that most readers just zoom right on by. So let's not miss it. Um, here's how he closes out the first letter that we call 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5.12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. And that really means that he dictated it. So thanks, Silas. Thanks for, thanks for writing it down so that we could read it. Encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And then something really interesting, something that sounds wonderfully, confusingly, uh, bible and, and obscure. He drops us some first century code. Now, remember, Peter's still on the run when, he, when he's writing this, right? So he doesn't want anyone to know um, where he is or who he's with if his letter gets inter- intercepted. Um, so he closes this letter with this, verse 13, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, when, when you get to this, of course the first question is, who is she? And Babylon? Why, would he, why is he in Babylon? By the time that Peter wrote this letter, Babylon's now an insignificant city, like hundreds of miles east of Jerusalem. So why was he in Babylon? Well, he wasn't. This was all code. And secret codes are fascinating, right? So solve this, right? It's an escape room. Here's what he's saying. She refers to the church. And Babylon refers to Rome. It's the empire. He was hiding in the last place that anyone would suspect because the church was spreading like wildfire. The church in the city of Rome, in in, in the heart of the empire, was growing like crazy. Long after the miracles and long after the miraculous escapes had subsided, this countercultural, miraculous generosity of the church continued to erode those old ways and to establish a better way. They lived and breathed generosity and time, treasure and talent, and a new kingdom, a different kind of king. And thanks to you and followers like you, the kingdom, the kingdom of conscience, the kingdom of generosity, the upside-down kingdom continues to expand to this very day. When it gets dark, it's easy for us to be consumed by the darkness, surrounded and overwhelmed by the darkness, right? And that's when I'm, I'm most tempted to just think about me or to think more first about me than I normally already do. What about me and what about my finances and what about my family? What about what I want? What about what I prefer? What about what's convenient for me? 
the darkness, the uncertainty, the change. It tempts us all to pull up the drawbridge and to circle the wagons, to, to take a defensive posture, to point our finger at the enemy, to close our hands, to close our hearts. And while there's wisdom in planning for the future, while there's wisdom in thinking ahead, there is nothing Christ-like about allowing uncertainty and instability to close our hearts and to close our hands towards others. In the darkness, in the uncertainty, that's when our light matters most. How is your light shining? That's when our light shines the brightest. Why? Because it stands, we stand in contrast to everything else around it. So into one, let's not withdraw. Let's look for ways to shine even brighter, to give more, to serve more, to love more. Because when the only thing that's certain is uncertainty, that's our opportunity. Here we go. If we, the church, and specifically if we at Into One get this right, people might always roll their eyes at what we believe, you know. Resurrection of a first century rabbi? Really? But they should be envious of how well we treat each other. And they should be amazed at how well we treat them. According to Jesus, it is by that unique, selfless expression of love, and by that alone, that people will know that we are in fact His followers, His disciples. Not our marches, not our petitions. And in that way, we, like our first century brothers and sisters, have, uh, will have allowed our light to shine in such a way that people notice and they look eyes up and perhaps come face to face with our Father, their Father in heaven. Kind Father, thank you for what you have put in motion. Thank you for choosing us. And thank you for reworking the way we think about things. It is so easy to think of the miracle of, of Peter's escape as, as being the miracle, the, the thing that was amazing, but it impacted Peter and a couple of people. But, but, but later on, the, the miracle that awakened generosity and compassion in these people changed the empire. It reset the world that that miracle of the transformation of our minds, the renewing of our minds, changed the world. And, and God, we, we, I confess, I know that I have, and, and maybe some of my friends listening as well, we, we, we long for the miracle. Will you do something specific just for me, just for right now? And, and in that, we would see God's intervention, but, but our part in, in playing a role where my heart is transformed, and because of my transformed heart, I behave in ways that are countercultural. Well, too often I don't see that as a miracle. I just see that as regular life. But this is a miracle that you have worked to change the world. For hundreds of years you've been using this to change hearts and then to have people live in the midst of whatever they were living in differently. The circumstances weren't different, they were different. And because they were different, the circumstances changed. Not because they got permission, not because they got legislation, not because they got funding, but because they lived in such a compelling way. People around them were drawn to that. They saw it as the better way. They saw it as the, the better way to capture the essence 
of life. They were freed from the, the, the appeal of the greed and corruption that was all around them. And in not following that myth, they established your kingdom. They, they caused it to grow and to come to life. They animated it, and, and it went wherever they were, and it didn't matter what country they were in, and it didn't matter what the laws said, and it didn't matter what, whether people were for them or against them. They lived the same because they believed that they were living in the kingdom of God. And this is just the way we live in the kingdom of God. Not to get what we want, just to be who we're supposed to be. And in being who we're supposed to be, things change around us. And, and, our, and our first thought is to say, well, it's irrational and that doesn't make sense and that'll never happen and that'll never work. But we already know, we have historical evidence that it has already happened. And more than once. Now, I, I understand that we're afraid as we go into it. We, we, don't, we don't know whether or not you're going to show up. We don't know if it's just going to be risk and, and cost. But God, take our eyes up. Jesus first, everything else afterward. Our trust is in you, not to get me what I want, not to help me to win. My trust is in you so that I might live well in this life. And in that, doing that, pursuing that, you have promised that you will provide for us everything that we need beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. Let us be people who are not so convinced of our beliefs that we'll speak them to other people, but so convinced of our beliefs that we will act like we believe them in front of everyone. Set us free in this humble, earnest pursuit after Jesus. Help us to see as you see so that we can do as you say. Because there is so many there are so many things. There, there's such a dividing wall between what we see and what you ask for so frequently. It's hard for us to believe. But if we can see as you see, then we can do as you say because it'll make sense. So for me and for my friends today, help us to see as you see so that we can do as you say. Set us free to live well in this kingdom and let the earth be changed because of it. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.